Father, at the end of the day, all we have in this world is you. At the end of the day, Lord, we will stand before you. And so I pray today, Father, that this time will count. That we'll not just be marking time, um, feeling an obligation, but rather, Father, that we would encounter you this morning as our prayer. That like Jacob, we would meet you face to face and find in you our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, that we would be able to say, Lord, looking back, only by your grace have we come to this point. We wouldn't have made it here without you, Lord. And only by your grace will we make it safely home. So we come to you, Lord, in worship. You're our creator. You have created all things. You're our redeemer. You have reconciled all things to yourself through Christ. So today, Father, I pray that we would recognize our absolute dependence on you and give us the grace to declare our dependence today, Lord, to acknowledge how much we need you, that we, we can't live long without food or water and much less time without air, but we can't live without you at all for a single second. So, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us today in great power. And we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. God is good all the time. It's good to be here. We had a great week at camp. As Jerome said, it's my privilege to be there. I want to thank you as a church for allowing me to take a week a year just to invest in the lives of our students. I think in this week I get to know them better than uh, just when I stand up here and preach on Sundays and uh, I saw them in a different light, particularly in that game, Acquire the Tire. Um, when they um, were racing into that mud pit um, filled with mayonnaise and chocolate and Cheerios and pulling out inner tubes, and some worth 100 points and some worth 10, and, and tiny little girls, beautiful, gracious, dignified little girls named Faith and Grace and Hope. I mean, biblical concepts were racing in there with fangs, grabbing inner tubes and running out. And uh, it's a great thing if you make it out of the circle alive. And even better if you make it out of the circle holding an inner tube. But if you can't get an inner tube and get it out and get points for your team, the, the next best thing our students will tell you is to find some other person who's trying to get out of the circle and to uh, tackle them and, and then to hold on, just to hold on until the, the air horn blows and then at least they don't get any points so you're not going backward. It's sort of defense in the game of acquire the tire and just sort of watching that I was reminded of a saying from a friend of mine years ago. I asked him the question, I said, how do you know that it's God? How do you know it's God working? How do you know it's God speaking? How do you know God is moving? My friend, who was my prayer partner and mentor for about six years, we prayed every Wednesday morning, early in the morning, on our knees, and he said, Pastor, you will know that it is God when all you can do is hold on. Jacob learned that. He had spent his life grasping for things, but at the end, as God was transforming his life, the very best he could do was hold on. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning in Genesis chapter 32, verses 7 through 12. I want us to study 
a prayer this morning. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis. It comes from an unlikely source, Jacob. To our knowledge, he has not yet prayed until this moment, but God has spoken to him, and now he is ready to talk to God. He's on his way home, and God speaks to him, and he speaks to God. And I think we can learn from his prayer today. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Genesis chapter 32, verses 7 through 12. And then I'm going to pick up the story of his wrestling match in verse 22. But let's start with verse 7 today, where it says, Jacob, in great fear and distress, divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought... If Esau comes and attacks one group, the the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Then in verse 22, we pick up the story. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok and after he had sent them across the stream he sent over all his possessions so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak when the man saw that he could not overpower him he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man then the man said let me go for it's daybreak but Jacob replied I will not let you go unless you bless me the man asked him what's your name Jacob he answered Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Thank you. You may be seated. Hmm. The sun set on Jacob, remember, as he was leaving Canaan, running from the consequences of his relationship, his deceit, defrauding his brother. The sun set. Do you remember that? We read that in Genesis chapter 28 and 29, as he's leaving, the sun sets on Jacob. Now he's coming back to Canaan, and it's a turning point in his life because in chapter 31, verse 13, God told him, after you had um, married twice, had 12 kids, and 20 years later, it's time for you to go home. Jacob knows it's time to go home, and he's headed back, and he finds himself sandwiched between two bridges that he's burned, between two difficult relationships. On the one hand, his father-in-law Laban is chasing him because he's left by night and Laban finally has a dream and God tells him, don't you say anything to Jacob. And when he finally captures Jacob, he says, look, I look at your family and I see your, 
your wives are my daughters and your kids are my grandkids and your stuff is my stuff. You've taken all my stuff, all my flocks and all my herds, but I can't do a thing about it because God told me just not to say anything to you. And Jacob deals with that relationship and says, you changed my wages 10 times, but But while I was serving you there, the God of my father Abraham, really his grandfather, and listen to what he says in verses 42 and 53 of chapter 31, and the fear of Isaac, that's what he calls God, the fear of Isaac, the God of my father Abraham and the fear of Isaac have watched over me and protected me and he has told me to go home, so leave me alone and he leaves his father-in-law behind. But then... As he gets closer, he gets the report that Esau is coming to meet him. And Esau is not alone. This brother whom he has cheated and defrauded has brought an army of 400 men with him. And all Jacob can think is, he's going to kill me and he's going to kill my wife and my kids. And for the first time in his life, he prays. I told you back when he saw the, the vision of the ladder of angels ascending and descending, he had not arrived. He's still not arrived, but he is... He has come closer and we see some transformation taking place in his life because for his whole life, he was willing to jettison relationships in order to get rich. But now he's sending his herds ahead of him back to his brother to bribe his brother, to appease his brother. He's doing everything he can. And for the first time in his life, relationships mean more than wealth to him and particularly his relationship with God. And he prays, and I love the way he prays, because he prays with humility, and he says, God, everything I have came from you. I didn't get any of this on my own. He recognizes God's grace at work in his life. He uses the word chesed, God, your your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace is the best New Testament word for that. And he says, your truth, you've been faithful, you've been loyal to me, God. And, And he just prays with humility. And we've never seen him say, I'm an unworthy servant but he does now. And the second thing I notice about his prayer is he prays with audacity. I mean, he has the audacity, the temerity to say to God, you made some promises to me and I'm not going to let go of those promises. And, and you almost see a precursor to the wrestling match because he's holding on to God's promises before he literally holds on to God. And I love the way that Jacob prays because it teaches us something about prayer that if we're going to be right with people, we've got to first be right with God. And to be right with God, we've got to pray with humility and acknowledge he's the only one who can fix our lives. And when we understand who he is and understand who we are, then we can pray with audacity and say, because we are your children, God, we are depending on you to keep every promise that you have made to us. And Jacob's life teaches us this. I thought about this this week out at camp. If we learn anything from Jacob, it's this. Sanctification is a process. Getting right with God, it's not instantaneous. It's a lifelong journey. As Eugene Peterson has called it, it's a long obedience and he for the first time when God says go home he says I'll do what you say God and I wonder if we've come to that place yet with God that we are willing to obey him we are willing to come back to him we are never going to be right in our relationships with people apart from a right relationship with him but I'll show you when we get right with him he's going to help us and realign our priorities and our relationships with others and what God teaches us is he wants to make us right he wants to change us from the inside out and for God to do that it begins with prayer with a prayer rooted in humility and audacity first see how he prays with humility there in verse 
verses 9 and 10, he starts out with God and he says, you're my family's God. And by the way, every family has a God. Rachel, his wife, has brought the household gods of her father with them into the land. But when they get close to Bethel, he's going to say, get rid of them, bury them, because you can't bring your gods into the presence of our God. Our God is greater. And he says, you're the God of my father, Abraham. You're the God of my father, Isaac. And he says, you're the same Lord who told me to come home. So what's Jacob saying? He's saying, my grandfather's God and my father's God, that's my God. And I was wondering who your family's God is. Even atheists have a family God. Maybe it's the the altar of reason that you worship at. But I love Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Real reason brings us face to face with the reality of God. Maybe you worship at the altar of materialism. Maybe like Jacob, stuff is the most important thing. And you've been willing to sacrifice relationships with people in order to get stuff. I remember my family growing up, my sort of extended family, there were family members cheating each other because stuff was more important than people in that part of our family. And as a young person, I just sort of watched that. I had a front row seat to the anger and the frustration in the family over money. And I've seen that as I've grown up, how people will argue and quarrel over stuff. And they'll even lose touch with their relationships. Watch what happens when Jacob says, okay, God, I've done it my way. I've spent my life serving myself, trying to get my own worth. But now for the first time, he says, I am an unworthy servant. You know where else we see that same sort of uh, aggregation of words? It's in Luke chapter 17. You hear Jesus teaching a story about a servant who does what he's supposed to do. And instead of saying, look at me, I'm really something. Give me my reward. The servant says, yeah, I'm just an unworthy servant. And Jesus says, when you've done everything your father's told you to do, then this is what you say. God, I'm an unworthy servant. Life is not about establishing our worth. It's not about getting greater net worth. Life is about recognizing his worth. It's why the angels in heaven around the clock sing worthy. They give God his worth, his worthship. Our word for that is worship. And so when we're worshiping, all we're doing is saying, God, it's your worth. You're the one who's worthy of power and glory and praise. You're the one who's worthy of riches and honor. You're the one, God, who's worth it. You are worth it, God. And when we recognize his worth, one thing we notice about ourselves is by comparison to God's great worth, we are unworthy. You know, when I hear it, when I ask you sometimes, how are you doing? And you say, better than I deserve. I've got members of the church. If I ask them, how are you doing? They'll say, better than I deserve. Hey, that's my story. Is that your story? Better than I deserve. It's God's, it's God's worth that matters. He says, I'm an unworthy servant. Our students got a sort of front row seat to um, servanthood this week, talking about Jesus who, who was in very nature God. Philippians 2, remember? And he's in very nature God. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he lets that go. And what does Jesus do? He descends from heaven down to earth. And our camp pastor, Scott Pollock, is an amazing Bible teacher at his church. When he taught Philippians 2, he put up a 16-foot ladder and he sort of hung onto it with one leg and, and taught them about Jesus descending from heaven to earth. And so he tells us in our worship planning meeting, he says, hey, on Thursday night, I need a ladder in the pavilion because I'm going to come down the ladder. And we said, yeah, that's a great idea, except we're not going to be in the pavilion. And a 16-foot ladder is going to look kind of silly against a 170-foot cliff out there in the uh, canyon where we're going to be worshiping. And you can almost see the wheels beginning to turn. He's a mountain climber, rock climber. And he goes, hey, I've got an idea. And I'm thinking about insurance at this point, right? (laughs) 
And he says, here's the deal. I'm going to be up on top of the cliff and I'm going to preach on my way down. And he did. I mean, he came down and he found these precarious perches, pedestals that he thought were pulpits where he preached to us as he came down the mountain. And I remember when he told us he was going to do it, I said, our students will never forget that. They will never forget that passage. But if anything happens to you, I can't fill in because it would be easier for, for us to teach somebody to preach than for you to teach me how to climb. I mean, it's not going to happen, but I'm amazed and grateful. And it was an amazing sort of just um, word picture, visual representation of what Jesus did for us, how he became a servant. But I tell you, I watched it all week long. I watched it in vacation Bible school last week and then at camp this week when our sponsors and our leaders and our elders, we called them, when these people were pouring life into our students, were serving them and walking with them in the heat of the day and, and uh, being there with them in wreck and teaching them Bible verses and sometimes taking them into Kerrville on stretchers because, I mean, we help the medical business and economy of Kerrville every summer. And they were taking them in and volunteering to drive the bus and, and pick up the kids and love the children, uh, the students who were there. It was just a reminder to me that servanthood comes in many forms. But at some point in our lives, we've got to figure out life is not about us. You know where I really saw it this week? And I absolutely love this is when the students that I saw grow up going to Camp Tallowood say, I want to go back and be a sponsor. And I want to pour my life into the next generation of students because there were sponsors who poured. Man, that is, that is amazing to watch, to have a, a front row seat, to see that happening and to see them rejoice as kids come to Christ and put their arms over them and pray for them. That is absolutely what servanthood is all about. And these students who are doing it now learned it from the best. So can I just say publicly, thank you for being servants. And whether it's at camp or VBS or it's in the weekly ministries of this church, absolutely, this church marches forward on its knees, praying a prayer saying, God, we are unworthy servants. We see who we are, but we also see who you are. We see that you are loving and you are kind and you are patient and you are faithful and everything we have comes from you. Jacob says, when I crossed the river going in, when the sun was setting on my life, all I had was a stick, like the staffs the seniors carried this week. That's all he had to his name. He slept on a, on a pillow that was a rock that night. But he says, I come back and I'm two groups. I, I thought about when I went off to college, I left Montana to come down to Texas back in 1980. Everything I owned in the world, I had in one box. I mean, everything I owned in the world, one box. I used in my college dorm room about six inches of the, um, of the space where you hang your clothes. My roommate brought like that much stuff, but I just had, that's all I owned, you know? I was amazed that people had like multiple suits. The only suit I had was a suit that my mother had made for me for my ordination into ministry. That's all I had. And when I think about that, and I think about how God is blessed, I understand what Jacob's saying. And what I want to say to you is if you just kind of take an inventory this morning and look at everything you have in the world, can you just with Jacob say, yeah, God, you did that? Can you say that? You say, but I worked hard. I'm not saying you didn't work. I know you work hard. Can, I, can we just agree together that God has given you favor and he has blessed you and he has poured into your life and that every good and perfect gift in this world comes down from the father of lights. He gives and he gives and he gives again. And the only thing we have is what he has given. And when Jacob realizes that that's a turning point in his life. And here's what I want you to see for the first time in his life, he starts caring more about relationships than he does about riches. That's a turning point. Because he would have gladly given up all his relationships. He burned all those bridges with family members to get their stuff. 
And now can you see it? He's sending his stuff ahead of him to his brother going, hey, take my camels. I don't need them. Here are my sheep. Here are my goats. Because he wants so badly to be reconciled with his brother. That's a sign of the grace of God in his life. Jacob is changing. He's still called Jacob at this point, but he's he's changing. And something is happening in his life. Now watch this. He not only prays with humility, but he prays with audacity, with temerity, with boldness when he says in verses 11 and 12, yeah, God, I'm afraid, but you have said, I saw that this week. It's like a poem, just like a two-line poem. I am afraid, but you have said, I just want you to say that out loud with me this morning. I am afraid, say that with me. I am afraid, but you have said, say it with me, but you have said. That's a great moment in his life when he recognizes his fears and he begins to confess them to God. He says, I'm afraid my brother's going to kill me. And that's a real fear. And we've all got lots of things that we're afraid of through the years. I've confessed to you my fears. Somebody was keeping track one time and said, you've now told us you're afraid of bees and wasps and snakes and water and heights. That's another reason I wasn't going up on that cliff. I mean, I'm afraid of that. And all these things that we're afraid of. Well, what's Jacob afraid of? He's afraid his brother's going to kill him. He's afraid he's going to experience the consequence of the way that he treated his own brother. And he's honest about that fear. And he brings that fear into the presence of God. And here's what happens. Jacob's problems collide with God's promises. And God's promises win. I'm afraid, but you have said... And he says, God, you have said that you're going to give me prosperity. You said you're going to give me posterity, a family, a heritage. Here I am. I've got I've got 12 kids, 11 sons and a daughter. He's got another son on the way. He's going to have 13 kids. But he says, it won't matter if my brother comes and snuffs out our lives because of my past sins. I love that movie, The Patriot. And uh, years ago, I was watching that movie in the beginning of that movie where just you hear the voice of the of the key actor speaking over the the top of it, um, and this actor um, says, I have long feared that my sins would find me out and the pain is more than I can bear. What have you long feared? Because I can tell you, you, you know my list of fears. I've been transparent for, I'm in my 14th year with you now. I've been transparent with you, but I'll tell you what I fear more than anything, that in some way I would displease God. That somehow after helping everybody else sail that I would shipwreck. I'll tell you what I fear. I fear what, what Jacob feared. That at the end of the day, this posterity, that somehow the generations of family that follow will not serve God. I had a great, great grandfather who was a Baptist preacher who planted churches in Tennessee after the Civil War. I had a great, great grandfather. But as far as I can tell in the generations between him and me, something was lost in the translation. And there were generations that had no interest in God at all. And when I look at that, I think, God, don't let that happen. Don't don't let us love you with all we are full on. And then generations that follow lose touch with you. That's something to be afraid of. And this is Jacob going, "I, I care about my family more than I care about my wealth. You've prospered me. Thank you. But what about my kids, God? What if my brother harms my kids? What if? And he's dealing with that fear. And then he says, But you have said, and he says, God, you promised me, you told me, my kids, you told me I'd have this heritage, these descendants, this legacy, and God, I am holding 
on to that promise. With, with pit bull tenacity, Jacob is not letting go of the promises that God made to him. This is real prayer. When you say to God, I know you promised me this and not one of all your good promises has ever failed. So God, I'm holding you to this. I'm holding on to you. And if Jacob was good at anything, he was good at holding on. He was holding his brother's heel when he was born. He was good at holding on to things. And he says, I'm holding on, God. For the first time, he's holding on to the right things, to the promises of God. It sort of gives us just a sort of preview of the wrestling match to follow when he sends all his stuff. Imagine Jacob sending all his stuff across the river and there he is alone because at the end of the day, you're alone with God. And he's alone with God. His stuff doesn't matter. He, He can't buy God off. He can't bribe God. And he's there alone and somebody starts wrestling with him and he doesn't know who it is. Is it Esau? Is Esau come? We don't even know at the beginning of the story. I mean, I know we know the story, but at the beginning of the story, we don't know who this is. Who's wrestling with Jacob there in the darkness? Is it Esau? Is it Esau's best army man? Is it some assassin? Is it somebody who's come to kill him? Is it, is it a demon from hell? I mean, we don't know who it is. But as he wrestles, what he discovers is that this person has the power just by touching his hip to dislocate it. And Jacob's going to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. The only sport I ever did competitively, I mean, after T-ball, and they, they sort of sent me away from that after the second grade and, and uh, played football for one year in the eighth grade. The only sport I ever did was wrestling in Montana and Germany where I grew up. It was a, a big thing. I know it's hard for you to envision right now. Don't think like the Hulk Hogan on TV. I know that would be hard to imagine. But think like Olympics, freestyle wrestling, and that's, that's what I did. And, um, you know, I've run marathons, and I, I've done a, a mini triathlon, and um, I've ridden a bike for, um, you know, dozens of miles. Um, but in my life, I have never been as tired as after a six-minute wrestling match, three rounds, two minutes each round, where every sinew, every muscle in your body um, is tired. I remember, you know, um, wrestling at, at 94 pounds, <laughs> five feet, nine inches tall, 94 pounds, and, and coming in the third round against a guy named Richard Sweezy from Bombholder. He was a 25-year-old ninth grader with a goatee and um, very, very scary person. And I'm sure that I looked at him, just looking in his eyes, you know, the reflection when you're sort of locking up at the beginning, I could see in his eyes, I looked like a pretzel. You know, he was just ready to sort of, you know, turn me inside out. And sure enough, he did. Um, But I I learned in, in wrestling how exhausting it can be. But Jacob figures out for the first time, look, he, he did strive with his brother Esau and he won. He strove with, with uh, his father-in-law Laban and he won. But he's finally met his match because he can't win. You say, well, he won. No, he didn't win. He walked with a limp the rest of his life. And every time he limped, he remembered how he had come face to face with God. And here's what he's proud of at the end. He says, I lived. I survived. And the amazing thing in his life is he learns that at the end of the day, all we can do, look, as, as my friend Bill Gladden said, you will know that it's God when all you can do is hold on and the sun sets on Jacob's life at Luz, which becomes Bethel. But the sun rises not on Jacob, but on Israel as one who has striven with God and has finally prevailed because he's alive, because God has changed him. And you'll know that it's God. You say, how do you know that it's God, Pastor? Yeah, you'll know that it's God when all you can do is hold on. Whatever you do, when you wrestle with God, what are you going to do, put a half Nelson on him? You think you're going to pin God? You're going to manipulate him, connive, force him to do it? No, you can't, but I'll tell you what you can do to God. Do this this week. 
Hold on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing love and mercy and power and grace. We are overwhelmed by your goodness, Lord. That you would condescend to love us is a sure sign of grace, God. Look, you know who we are. You know who we've been. And you know who we're going to be. And I thank you, God, that you're not finished with us. Lord, we're not who we ought to be. I'm not who I ought to be. But I thank you that I'm not who I used to be. And I pray, God, that you will never stop working on us until you perfect us in the image of your son. And while you're working, Lord, sometimes it's painful and sometimes we walk with a limp. But at least, Lord, let us acknowledge this, that were it not the Lord who was on our side, our enemies would have swallowed us alive. But because you have been good to us, Lord, and because you have promised, we will take you at your word that you are the God who saves. And we say with Jacob, Our enemies want to destroy us, but you want to save us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God, I pray today that you would help us to hold on to you and to all of your good promises. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.